0: It is a terrible thing when my microphone does that. And it's also a terrible thing when the people are united in darkness, when they're united in wickedness. It's a terrible thing. It's a tragic thing. And so when you consider Egypt's setting at this point, they're united in darkness against the Lord. Pharaoh, their leader, has increasingly hardened his heart. And so what we're hoping for is that Egypt will become divided, that division will take place, where unity can so easily become this virtue of virtues that we, yes, let's aim for unity, but unity in darkness is not a good thing, it is wickedness. And so what we long for as readers of the story, and we see the Lord's progressing judgments and these strikes upon Egypt and these plagues, is what we see is that light begins to come into the darkness of Egypt division starts to sprout among the Egyptians division that we're calling this morning merciful division merciful division that is actually God's mercy being shown to the Egyptians that is therein causing division to sprout and for the last 3,500 years of history division for the sake of knowing and worshiping the Lord and responding to His Word has caused division across families and communities and nations. And that's what we pray for. Merciful division. This morning as we look at this text and examine it in a little bit more detail, we ask God to bring division in places where there's Darkness. But we also, with an honest heart, will ask the Lord to mend our hearts together as those who as we join together as a congregation, this gift a local church, the people of God, that we gather together understanding that many of us in this room have relationships that have been frayed and divided because of Jesus. And so the calling that we have together as we give a beautiful song of worship in our lives and we respond to the word is that we're to be family one to another. For many in our congregation have relationally lost Because of Jesus, parents and children and family relationships and friendships, because of Jesus. That's what's happening now in Egypt. Because of this plague, there's relational strain beginning to take place. And after we look at this, at the end of the passage, we'll look at Pharaoh and we'll note in Pharaoh's life the anatomy of a false confession. He makes a confession that sounds great, but in reality, it is a false confession. So let's look first, as we note together in verses 19 through 26, this first central idea that the word of the Lord, it mercifully divides human kingdoms. Egypt was united in its purpose and its mission. And yet when Moses comes into the land, being commissioned by the Lord God, division comes into the land. The revelation of who the Lord is comes into the land and therein comes division. In 19-21, as we unpack this idea that the Word of the Lord mercifully divides human kingdoms, is the understanding that those who begin to pay attention to God's Word, they move in a different direction. As people begin to heed the Word of God, their lives begin to shift into a different direction. And we see this, and the author and the language of what we'll see later on with the fear of the Lord is contrasted here first with a fear of the Word of the Lord. And this isn't just semantics. We might use this in a a statement of saying the Lord is starting to get a hold of them. You ever use that saying before? You've had a friend or a family member or somebody that you're able to look at close to and say, I think God's getting a hold of their heart. Meaning you're starting to see that that person is beginning to value the Word of God. They're giving an attentiveness to the Word of God that they never had before. God's working in them. He's doing something there. That's what's happening with many of the Egyptians. The Word goes out in the seventh plague. The Lord God has told them by way of Moses that this hailstorm is going to fall and, and plague Egypt the likes that Egypt has never seen before. And as the word spreads throughout all of Egypt, a number of them begin to fear the word of the Lord. And therein, the direction of their life begins to change. Because it's harvesting season. That last detail we had there at the end gave us an insight when this is taking place. It's in the springtime in Egypt. And so... The normal thing would have been to go into work and to get into the land. But the Lord has told them, mercifully, did God have to tell them that the plague was about to come and befall them? No. Matter of fact, as we remember last week, God told Pharaoh, if I desired to, I could cease to sustain you. I could destroy you and all of Egypt. But he doesn't. And we saw the purpose of that last week. But now he tells them here, he gives this word of the judgment of God that's about to be poured out upon the hard-hearted Pharaoh and his people. And that judgment comes with a warning of what's about to happen. And a portion of the Egyptians hear and respond, and they're in the direction of their lives changes. Even though normally that time of year, they would have all been out in the fields working. All of their servants would have been working the field to bring in the harvest. But this portion of Egypt... Fears the word of the Lord. They put the dots together and look and say, "Hey, okay, the slaves Israel that we have up here in Goshen right now. Uh, every time they've said something is going to happen. Every time that Moses has said something. Every time their prophet has said something, it's happened. So uh, you can make fun of us, but we're not going out. We're bringing every we're bringing the livestock in right now. It's the time for." For working, uh, no, we're listening to Him. The direction of their lives changes. And this portion of Egypt continues on with life normal. It says they do not consider the Word of God. They ignore the warning that God gave. And they go into the field. And what happens in Egypt then, even though these have not yet come unto belief upon the Lord, they've not yet come into the covenant promise of Abraham, this blessing of the nations. They're blessed in a temporary way. We'll look at this. But there becomes a division in Egypt that's beginning because of the proclamation of the Word of God. And this could perhaps be you this morning. You, for the first time in your life, might be considering the things of God in a way that you never have before. And even though you've not yet repented and placed your faith and trust in Christ alone, the momentum of your life is beginning to hit the brakes. God is beginning to illuminate and show you the, 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 truly the distastefulness of walking in your own way, in your own rule. That's what's beginning to happen for a portion of Egypt. And this often comes through an understanding of the Word of God. As we talk about a church, we're people devoted to the Word of God. And we encourage people to get involved with groups, get involved with men's group, and and women's group, and small group. And from all of our groups, from the youngest of ages up, from from GBC Littles, to GBC Kids, to Refuge Ministry, to, to the many... College ministries cross Point and campus outreach and AIA, and we encourage people to get involved with groups because as we get exposed to the Word of God, God begins to get a hold of our hearts and we consider the God of the Word. For me, I was uh, eleven years old, and my dad uh, I was reading his Bible and he asked me if I wanted my own Bible. Now, I had a Bible, but i, I didn 't have much interest in it. You know, I took it to church with me and so my dad asked the pastor, uh, I was eleven years old, this is not 1997. Uh, and he got me this Bible, the New Adventure Bible. The pastor recommended this, so he got it for me. I don't know anything that's particularly adventurous about this Bible besides the fact that it looks like it went through an adventure from the way that I handled it for my whole life. This thing has seen some stories. But my dad told me to just begin reading the Bible. That was the counsel he gave me, and so I began reading the Bible. And as I read it that year, that first year, what I did was I took an approach. You may not, I'm not recommending to you. I did the Dave Ramsey Financial Peace University debt relief approach. I wasn't familiar with those terms as an 11-year-old. But what I began to do is I did the debt snowball. And so Dave Ramsey says you pay off your smallest debts and then work your way up to build momentum to get your biggest debt done. That's what I did by default as an 11-year-old looking at the Bible. I looked at Genesis and I'm like, that's going to take me forever. So I'm like, what's a smaller book? Okay, Second John, you're my boy. Right? And I began knocking that. I remember, I'll never forget coming out of my room and being like, I've read four books of the Bible come on. And then I just kept kind of crossed them off and going all the way through the rest of scripture that way. But what was happening is God was getting a hold of my heart. I was beginning to consider in more detail the things of God. Where are you at in your life? How old were you when God began to get a hold of your life? I want to encourage you, regardless of how old you are, how often you've been around the word of God, to take it up and begin to read. Ask the Lord to build a greater passion and understanding for Him. Reveal Himself to you by His Word. And one of the greatest shame plays that the enemy tries to tell us is we're too old or we should have done this far long ago. And what you miss is how the Lord works in our lives and we're sensitive to His Word today. Egypt is moving now in two different directions. A number of people very literally are taking refuge when the rest of Egypt is walking their own way out into the land. They'll experience the consequences of that. So we ask God, bring about a merciful division in our families and in our land. Now, as we continue on looking in more detail in 22 through 26, the word of the Lord, it mercifully divides human kingdoms. And we see this begin to show itself in the way that it blesses the Egyptians that respond with a fear of the word of the Lord. In 22-26, those who begin to pay attention to God's word, they get an initial taste of the mercy of God that's common to God's people. We say it like this, the blessings of God. The blessings of being the people of God. Even though these Egyptians just only have a fear of the word of the Lord and the consequences that come with it, they already are experiencing some of the blessings. Israel up in the northern part of Egypt in Goshen, Egypt is a very large nation actually, about the size of Texas or so. A large nation itself. You get that? I called Texas a nation as Texans. You should be like, yeah, Just I thought there'd be streamers coming down or something. I didn't know what was going to happen. I was excited, though. And so Israel's predominantly up here, and Egypt, all the people are spread out, and this plague comes. And the initial way in which the Egyptians who fear the Lord, who are all spread out, are blessed, is that they're alive. That's a great blessing. Israel's protected, so they're alive. And then all scattered out, all through Egypt here, is those who fear the Lord, they took refuge and they're spared. They were shown mercy by God. And those who did not fear the word of the Lord, many of them perished that were in the field at the time. And so we recognize there's many that grow up in church that experience the blessing of many of the virtues of Scripture, even though they don't yet know the Lord. Even though they don't yet know the Lord. And this becomes confusing for many. For they experience many of the blessings. They see a biblical teaching of marriage and they try to abide in that way. And they're blessed by many of the the biblical teachings that do provide a blessing in their life. As they abide by them. Protection from much foolishness and wickedness. And yet they don't yet know the Lord. And yet they taste some of the mercies of the people of the Lord. Yet they don't yet fear and know the Lord. The Lord comes and he cuts. What I want you to do is I want you to open up the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible, there's a Pewback Bible in front of you. It's page 815 in that book. And what we note here is that it is the mercy of God upon sinners that brings division with the lost. That there's this divide that comes in. And this, some 1,500 years before Jesus is giving this commission, this pre-commission, sending out the twelve and doing this work of ministry that they're doing. And even before then, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Do not think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. And so Jesus' coming itself is a statement of His mission, the mission of God, the purpose of God. That the Son who took on flesh and dwelt among us, fully God, fully man, that the Son is sent by the Father for a purpose—the missional heart of God. And when Jesus comes, we see in Matthew chapter ten, verse thirty-four and thirty-nine through thirty-nine something we don't normally associate with Jesus. And it's almost shocking, even as Christians, to read this and think, whoa, does, does that really say that? Notice what Jesus said. It's the same thing that's happening now in Egypt by the, word, that by the hand of the Lord, the Word of the Lord some 1,500 years earlier. Division begins to take place in Egypt. Look what happens. Jesus says in Matthew 10, picking up in 34, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me, Jesus says, is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. But whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake, he will find it. I want you to imagine somebody comes to your house this Thanksgiving and knocks on the door. All of your family is there. And you come out and meet them and they say, I want you to follow me. Follow my teachings. And if you do in that home, the father will be turned against the sons. They'll be divided because of me. Your mom will turn against her daughter. That home of feasting will become a house of enemies. So follow me. How great would that man have to be for you to adopt his teachings, for you to commit your life to him to follow him, knowing that the cost of doing so will bring about necessary, merciful division in your home? But that's exactly what Jesus says. Now we hear this and we think, wait a minute. At Christmas time, we talk about the peace of God. Love, joy, peace. We think of peace. And the angel, didn't he declare peace to those for whom the Lord finds favor? And the Lord's blessings rest. Didn't he say peace? Yes. Good news, peace to those that have been reconciled to God. Peace to those that come to the king, the Messiah Jesus Christ. But division will come to those that do respond in this good news proclamation. As Jesus sends the disciples out among Judea, this very united people ultimately against the Romans, He sends them out proclaiming the good news that the Messiah has come, the kingdom of heaven is near. And in that proclamation, what will take place is this household will respond and this household will not And division will happen in families and in businesses. In this household, this young daughter will respond to the faith, but the rest of the family will not, and the household will become divided where there was once unity. That's what the proclamation of the good news does. It brings life to those who respond, but it brings in division in the places where the light comes. Merciful division. I say this with an understanding that many in our room right now... Oh, I want you to do something. I know it's a little unusual for us, but again, look around for a moment. Try to make some awkward eye contact. Okay, look around for a little bit. It's okay. I want you to look around. Do you understand there's people in this room that have no relationship with their father or children? Because their father or child or mother has cut them off because of their allegiance to Jesus Christ and the way of life that he has called them to. And their their fidelity, their faithfulness to Christ itself becomes a constant sense and feel of judgment for the unbeliever. So there's a danger in our life and with technology is a great resource. We love technology. We love streaming abilities. That's a great ministry to, to our homebound folks. But there can be an easy slip-in in in our minds to think that church is something I consume or I download. And what happens if we pull into that and buy into that belief alone and we put it in that box? Or church is just something I attend? It is. We're a gathering people. The church is a place we gather. Make no mistake. And you've heard the saying, the church is a people, not a building. Well, that's true, but the people got to meet somewhere. Thank the Lord for our building, right? We're a gathering people. But what we do when we begin to make church something that we consume is we miss the fact that we have people that are, have fractured relationships because of Christ, just as Jesus said they would. And we don't lean in to get to know each other well enough to be family for them in Christ because we are family by the blood of Jesus Christ. The Lamb. Amen? And so our call is to know each other and be known together. Get involved. Involve yourself. This is my plea. Get involved with the group where you can be known, where your sin can be seen, where you can be ministered to, where you can share heartache of difficult things. And you may have great relationships with family that don't know Jesus, but if you're being honest, you have a different foundation, a different view of money and mission and morality. Your relationship is not the same if one of you is in Christ and one of you is not. And so minister to each other out of the Word of God. The word of the Lord mercifully divides human kingdoms. It doesn't mean it's easy, but the Lord's way is always right. Okay, let's look secondly. As we go into more detail, looking at Pharaoh in verses 27 through 35, we we gain an insight to the anatomy of a false confession, the anatomy. What does a false confession sound like? Because Pharaoh gives us one, so let's assess it together. The anatomy of the false confession, we see an insight in verse 27. First, it looks like a mouth that minimizes sin. A mouth that minimizes sin. I'll give you a little bit. I sinned. But we minimize the sin. The sinners, when we're not truly brought to life, we minimize our sin. And what happens when we minimize our sin? We minimize the consequence that our sin actually merited. And when our consequence is minimized, how big of a Savior do we actually need? A minimal Savior. We need a Savior just big enough to pay the little remaining balance that we couldn't quite take care of. We need a Savior to take care of the tip. And that's what Pharaoh does. He minimizes his sin. Look what he says. He says, this time I have sinned. Now, look down at verse 34. What does the Lord's Word tell us? Look at verse 34. And yet, he sinned again. He sinned yet again. Pharaoh looks at the consequences. He looks at the plague that's happened. The stones fall. They destroy or they damage in a great way the economy in Egypt. Many of the people have died. And he looks and he's grieved by it and he says, now I have sinned. But in reality, he's been living in perpetual hardening of heart and sin. It would be like this. It would be like if a serial arsonist on their 50th fire that they light. The fire gets out of control and it burns down their own house. And they're so overcome with guilt that they cry out, now I have broken the law. You look and say, well actually, I mean you did break the law, but there's 49 other fires that you (laughs) let you lit. You're a serial lawbreaker. You didn't just now sin, you've lived in perpetual sin. That's what Pharaoh does. He sees the devastation of the consequence of this plague. And he says, I have sinned. Now I have sinned. One of the components that we're going to have in our our marriage weekender component is a teaching of what reconciliation looks like. What reconciliation looks like. Have you ever had a half-hearted apology from somebody? Did that make your relationship better? It actually puts salt in the wound, doesn't it? A pharaoh offers a half-hearted, repentant statement with his mouth. But the Lord knows these things. Now there's part of this that's, that we marvel at, because we look and say, well, this seems like it's progressing in the right way. Again, look at 27. Then Pharaoh sent and called Moses and Aaron and said to him, this time I have sinned, the Lord is in the right. Or your translation may say, the Lord is the righteous one. And I and my people are in the wrong. This is good. He's right. He finally admitting that he and his people are in the wrong and the Lord is the righteous one. Because that's what confession is. When we occasionally, once or twice a month, we'll have a portion of our service that is a time of confession. Confession at its heart is agreeing with God. It's agreeing with God. He agrees with God that he's in the wrong and the Lord is in the right. But he minimizes these understandings. But in his statement that he gives, this itself is something amazing. This is amazing. Let's think about the scene that we're watching unfold here, okay? Let's go back, let's time travel back, and let's go down by the Nile River. And we're there with all of our friends and all the folks we're working with. And we're right there at the river. So we're sitting, we're all right around this area. It's before Moses has ever been sent back to Egypt to lead Israel free. So Israel, they're all these slaves, they're all spread out, they're all working. And while we're sitting down here, I begin to tell you a story. I said, you know what's going to happen in the future? Watch this. Pharaoh, and we see his temple up here. Pharaoh, he's a god also. In about a month or two, Pharaoh is going to admit that he's a sinner and he's going to submit and bow himself to those slaves' gods. Not God's one God. They claim that they have one God, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He's going to leave his throne and confess his sin and wrongness to those slaves God. What would be your response to that? Would you believe that that was possible? You'd laugh you think I'd lost my mind. But the Lord does exactly that. And His doing that is merciful. It's 1,500 years earlier before Philippians chapter 2, in which God's Word promises us that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. The Lord takes the greatest superpower at the time of Egypt. He takes the greatest ruler, the most powerful man in the world, and He makes him bow by using the plagues. And so, Christian, we worship the God that is God over even the plagues. The God that works merciful deliverance and division by even heartache. As Christians, we look and say, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. But Pharaoh demonstrates a mouth that minimizes sin. And second, he demonstrates as well a mind that disputes God's judgments. A mouth that minimizes sin... The anatomy of a false confession. A mouth that minimizes sin. And a mind that disputes, it questions God's judgment. Monday morning quarterbacking God. There has been enough, verse 28. He says, pleased with the Lord, for there has been enough. Or said with more emphasis, I think he's proven his point. There's been enough of God's thunder and hail. So even in his own profession, he's recognizing that the God of Israel is actually the God over the sky. He controls the weather. But he says, I think we get the point. You see what he's saying? You've done gone above and beyond. You don't need to keep doing this. We get the idea. You proved your point. You ever had a conversation with a friend or a spouse and they got way dramatic in your estimates of their argument? And you're like, okay, calm down, we get the idea. See what's happening here, or a teenager or something like that happening. Oh, hold on, okay. You're looking and you're judging and you're saying they are unjust in their demonstration of what's taking place. The Scripture refers to this as vengeance. It warns man. We see David does the same thing. He, He makes a misjudgment of vengeance and desires. He's... He's basically questioned in one scene after the death of Samuel in 1 Samuel and his heart is so angered. He's so imbalanced in his own mind that he longs to kill not only this guy but his entire, all the men in the area. And Abigail, the Lord sends Abigail and she comes and steadies his heart. The New Testament says vengeance is mine, says the Lord. Because our inability to assess and offer these things and understand these things. Pharaoh takes his heart that says, God, your judgment in this plague is too much. Was it really worth all this? Our hearts often do this. We overemphasize the Lord's decisions. Hell is one of those doctrines that many come into before they ever come to Christ and they look at it and they say, this is too much. And that's a mark of one in their life and their heart that says, but how bad really is sin? hearts question the judgment and the veracity and the truth of God's word and his judgments a mouth that minimizes sin a a mind that disputes God's judgment and that's why every Sunday when we gather God man Christ response we remind ourselves of the gospel message our brokenness God's glory our brokenness and God's greatness and what he's done in Christ that we are actually forgiven perfectly forgiven that we have true and lasting peace with God because of what Jesus has done. And we live a life of response, of proclaiming this good news that we have in Him. We need to be reminded of that message all the time or we'll begin Monday morning quarterbacking the judgments of God. That's what we see in Pharaoh's life. A mouth that minimizes one's sin, a mind that disputes God's judgments, and finally, a heart that has no real interest in the things of God. He tells us exactly this. He hardened his heart. He hardened his heart. Now, Pharaoh's negotiation tactics, let's get a reminder of where he's gone. He began by saying, when the very first interaction in chapter 5, let my people go that they may go and serve me and worship me. What did Pharaoh say? No. Who's the Lord? No. And then, some plagues start spicing it up, and then he moves to, okay, but you've got to stay in the land. And then he gets another strike from the Lord. And then he says, okay, but you got to stay close to the border of Egypt. So, don't go very far. And now he says in the Hebrew here, I can't stand you standing here any longer. Go. Get out of here. I don't ever want to see you again. That last part's not in the Hebrew. But the idea of don't stand here any longer. We can't stand your standing here. Go. Do exactly, exactly what you wanted to do. Go do it. We don't want you here anymore. That's what's coming out of Pharaoh's heart, which sounds great. It's exactly what it was supposed to be. It could have, could have saved seven plagues of humiliation and judgment. But God was working mission in the whole time. He was going to bring a number of Egyptians out of captivity. Isn't that good? And God sends Moses into Egypt to lead forth the Israelites from captivity. Pharaoh says no, and the Lord also takes a number of Egyptians with him into true freedom. Freedom in the way of Yahweh, in the way of the Lord. Now, what did Pharaoh ask them to come and do? He asked them to go out and pray again. This has happened multitude of times. And this is why the temptation for me is what set out our schedule to walk through this, was I think we're going to start feeling a little monotonous at this point. Okay, we see the pattern. Plague happens. Pharaoh says no more. Go talk to your God. They go talk to their God and he stops the plague, and it's this cycle. But this is the first time now that Pharaoh says this, but God says, I know your heart. I know you don't fear me. I know your servants don't fear me. I know you're not going to let my people go. But it doesn't stop there, does it? Like if I was writing this historical account, I mean, if I was writing this story, in reality, I would say, well, then I'm not going to go do it. It would mean, be like, why would you forgive somebody that you knew didn't mean it? It'd be hard to do, right? He asks to let him go, but Moses says, I know your heart, the Lord knows your heart. We know you're not going to let him go. But I'm still going to leave the city and I'm still going to ask the Lord to make the hail stop, and he's going to make it stop. you see what Moses did? The hails, the storms are still happening. Moses' faith is being built up through these plagues. It's one of the many purposes that God works through the plagues. Pharaoh is Moses is shifting from a man from the very beginning that says they'll never believe me to now a point of saying, I'll walk through the hailstorm and God's not going to let one of the hailstones strike me and kill me. God, My God is so sovereign and so much more powerful than Pharaoh and all of Egypt and all of men. That He will not allow a hailstone to strike a plant or a person apart from His sovereign purpose. And my God's already told me that He's going to lead you all free back into the mountain to worship Him. Moses' faith is building. Now part of the difficulty is Moses goes back into Israel for this purpose, to lead his people from captivity. But the race that God is establishing for him to run is a whole other generation of leading a forgetful people in the land. In our lives, successful people set goals and measurements that we want to accomplish and graduate and move on. But the Lord, in his goodness, allows difficulties to come into our life to train us for the greater race that we're running for his glory. And so much of our life is looking at setbacks, and we saw this, we see this in Moses' prayers. From the very first time, he begins to question God. He says, God, it's gotten gotten worse since I've come here. Remember when he dealt with the foreman earlier on? It's only worse since I've come. And yet God is preparing him to run a longer race with a different terrain than he's even preparing for. We worship a God who never wastes a hurt, amen? We worship a God who is over the storms. Moses' faith is being built for a journey that he's going to lead that he doesn't even know yet. All he's thinking about is getting out of Egypt, but the Lord has a whole getting to the boundary of the promised land. That's going to take 40 years. Trust that the Lord is good, that he's faithful in all his ways. Aren't you glad he sets the boundaries of our race? This is good news for our heart and good news for our lives. And 31 and 32, he gives us this little snippet. It's this little pause. You know, when the Weather Channel, and I want to say thank you to uh, those that delivered the, thank you for bringing the, the uh, resources for the Louisiana Disaster Relief Team. and They delivered that safely all yesterday. It was a great group. But whenever a storm hits, what does the Weather Channel do right away? What are they doing? They're pictures, right? Pictures of the devastation, and they show pictures of it. In writing, 31 and 32 are that for the reader. You're like, well, how bad was the hailstorm? In 31 and 32, he tells us, this part of the crop, devastated. This part, still going to happen. Which leads us as the reader to say, the economy of Egypt is really getting bad, but it's not devastated. That part's flying closer and closer with the locusts. He's still got a little hope left. But the Lord will humiliate him, will humble him. So we trust the God who sends the plagues. The mouth minimizes sin. The minds criticize God's judgment and the heart's hardened. Yet God is sovereign and works purpose in all these things. As we come into our next steps, two components I want to encourage you in. Two components. Following Christ brings divisions. But those divisions are a mark of God's mercy in our life. They're a mark of God's mercy in our life. And so one of the encouragements I want to give you is, to, uh, is at the end of this service, if you have a strained relationship with a family member or a friend because of Jesus... We want to be faithful to pray with you up here. Or if you want to send us an email or let us know, you can also email elders at Grace Bible Church. We want to be praying for you. We meet every week at 6 in the morning. We want to be praying for you and encouraging you. I also think this is a great discussion question if you're in a small group or just on your way home, to be able to ask the question, this question, how are your relationships right now because of Jesus? Because of Jesus. How are your relationships right now? And some of your relationships are just thriving because you're yoked to a person. That relationship is yoked to one that's also following and knowing Jesus. But some of your relationships are exactly what Jesus said would happen. A sword has come. A division from something that was once united is now torn asunder. And it's a chance to be able to minister to each other in that way. And secondly, would you ask the Lord to burden our hearts for those that lack an interest in the things of God as you consider people in your life that may be far from God? I want to give you a very tangible challenge. Would would you consider inviting them to come with you to church next Sunday? I'm so excited. I'll be here. and Jeff Townsend is going to be speaking. Jeff pastored at Grace in the 80s and just has a missionary heart for people to come to know Christ. And he's going to preach for us. We're going to take a one-week pause from Exodus. And he's going to preach for us this message in the always-seeking God. He's going to do a survey of Scripture of pointing out the Lord who works, not only through the plagues, but through people for His glory to spread the proclamation of the good news that people would come to know Him and to worship Him. For in that is true life. Amen? So consider inviting somebody to come with you next week and hear of this missionary heart of our always seeking God. The love and glory of our God is worth all things, isn't He? He's good. He's worthy of our song. It's by grace alone we stand together, church. Would you stand with me as we worship Him?